Emerge 2021, GDIT's signature virtual event series. See vision brought to life with GDIT and over 40 leading partners showcasing real solutions in digital modernization, emerging technology, and defense cloud. Register at GDIT.com slash emerge. This is Kim Meyer, host of Choose to Rise. Thanks for listening to the following broadcast on Public House Media. Hi, this is Emily. This is Lindsay. And this is Elizabeth, co-hosts of Beauties and Headcanons here on Public House Media. Thanks for listening to the following broadcast on Public House Media. Once you are done with this episode, we hope you'll come check out our show, Beauties and Headcanons, where we talk nerdy to you about fandoms, fan fiction, and all pop culture for nerds that you can think of. A new show comes out every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode of Beauties and Headcanons. Thanks again for checking out the following broadcast on Public House Media. good at making that so interesting, Sarah. (laughs) I have a question. Yes, yes. Sarah, you just had your birthday. I did. Yeah. My birthday. So first question, how was your birthday? And then second question, what did you learn? What was one of the biggest lessons you learned in the past year? Just in general, like in life. Um, Yeah, so I just turned 29. So I'm in my last year of the 20s. Um, and it's really exciting. I um, had a really hard time with 27. I like was very hopeless for a long time. Um, I like really struggled turning 27. Um, and I-, I processed why like I went to all the things I needed to go to. Um, so it's been really fun, like turning 28 and really feeling coming out of that and then turning 29 and coming out of that too. Um, so my 29th birthday was fabulous. Um, I went down to Argentina, which is so fabulous that I'm a flight attendant. And I did that. I hopped on a first class flight to Argentina, which is fabulous. I drank cool mimosas. Um, and then I met up with a really good friend of mine who is currently touring South America. Um, so I called her and was just like, wherever you are during these days that I happen to get off, um, I will come meet you. And she's like, great, I'll be in Argentina. And I was like, fabulous, I will meet you there. Um, and it was really wonderful. So she's a good friend. Um, and we got to just hang around and it was just fun seeing her. Um, we took dance classes. So we went, did a pole dancing class. We did a circus class. Um, and then we just ate like really fabulous food. which was really nice to see her. Um, but something in turning 29, I think I'm just, and I think this is things that people know and have shared for a long time, but I feel like my early twenties, I just spent a lot of time floundering and just like crying over everything and just like not sure who I was or who I wanted to be. And I was trying to like make everyone else happy and just trying to have people like me because I was struggling liking myself. Um, which I think is sort of a, a maybe normal narrative for people to have. I'm not sure. Um, 
So it's been really cool 20, turning 28 and 29, I mean, turning 29 now that I feel that I, I still don't feel like I know any more answers, but I'm so much more comfortable with who I am and who I want to be. And knowing that like, it doesn't matter. I don't need the answers, but I can figure out a way to get wherever I need to get. Um, so I'm feeling so much more like empowered and so much more fierce and um, being able to advocate for myself in certain situations and contexts. And, um, you know, like if things come up and people are trying to take stuff from me, I'm like, no, you can't do that um, because these are my boundaries. These are my limits. Like this is how you respect me. And I finally respect myself and love myself and know myself that I know that these are things that I can ask for. Whereas before I'd be like, oh, take whatever you want. And then I'd, you know, be crying and complaining because I had nothing left for myself. Yeah. Um, I think finally learning that and like where to learn, draw boundaries um, and and teach people how to respect me and then finally learning how to respect myself. So that's and then just like turning into a woman. Like now I've really been taking on this identity of being a woman um, and like I'm not a girl or a child because I think I just sort of wandered around being like, you know, a preteen for a while. Um, so now being like, no, like I'm a woman. I am a woman and I am empowered and I'm fierce and I can do the things that I need to and um and also being that person but still being very like loving and kind at the same time because I think in my head for a while those like conflicted I was like I'm either just like super doormat where I'm like the super like terrible angry person but it's not like both of those can coexist so learning all of those things all of those things are amazing things it's good and then it's just fun approaching 30 like I'm really excited for 30 um, girl me too and I feel like I'm kind of and maybe I say this now because I'm like in my last year of the 20s but I feel very like at peace with that and I feel like there's a ton of growth and learning and development that I've had in my 20s and I'm so thankful for it but I'm also like super stoked for this whole next phase um that I'm entering which I'm really excited for I love it. I'm speaking on my 30th birthday. I think I'll be excited for it, but there might be a lot of tears. Who knows? I can't even wait. So my like now we're in my birthday month and I'm about to yeah. turn 29. So ah. I know, right? I'm just right behind you, just a couple steps. Yeah. And yeah. and I but everything that you're saying is exactly how I feel. Like you cannot pay me to go back to my early 20s and live through that again. I am so happy to be getting older and to feel this is the big one for me to feel safe and stable, like the instability that I felt trying to figure out who I was or how to have a job or, or what ways to do different things. Like that was so stressful. Moving and to a new city? How do I figure city, out a new city? Moving. Yeah. Just like, how do I get jobs here? How do I network here? How do I find community here? Like all mm-hmm. of those are huge, big picture changes. And, and I love that I'm in a place where I'm not doing that right now. <laughs> I'm okay with that. (laughs) Or you know how, because you've already done it. Like you have these solid friendships that you've had for, you know, like even if we go back to, if we're just talking about friends you've had like in early 20s, like those are friendships you've had for almost 10 years now. And they know you, they've seen you this whole growth and development. And that's like community. Like it's wonderful. Totally. I'm moving into this weird phase now where I like, it's, it's like a weird settle down phase that I'm moving into that I know Sarah and I, we talk about a lot that I don't, I don't know how it came about or when I was suddenly ready, but like, I just am there. I know that I've met the person that I want to settle down with and that's super exciting. And there's this weird, like calm, but at the same time, super excitement that surrounds that where I'm just like ready for that phase now and I'm ready to do that. And there's no anxiety around it. There's only excitement and comfort and the excitement isn't any kind of stressful 
its thing, mm-hmm. which also was magic feeling too. You know, like it right. feels like it feels the way that they tell you it's supposed to feel. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> it's so fun. I know. Um, I was just sending Nikki comments too about um, like I, I'm excited to like buy somewhere to live like maybe not a legit house but like that's something that's sort of on the horizon that I'm like I want to talk to a financial advisor like I want to get and like (laughs) how do I pay off all my student loans because that's real um but just sort of really trying to get myself financially set up and then being like but like that's what I want to do with my day instead of like going to the movies or like riding a roller coaster or like buying stuff from somewhere but it's like no I want to get my stuff in order so I can like buy myself like a little apartment or a condo or something and um, and it's, that's just like, I've never felt like I'm ready for that. So I feel very similarly to like, it's cool yeah. to be in that phase, like to actually, you know what I think it is. I feel like we've actually moved into this place where we are adults and we aren't just pretending yeah. to be adults. Ooh, what? What? <laughs> what is that? I yeah, I do feel that I am an adult. Yeah. Oh, I, d- I mean, I pay so many bills. I'm an adult. <laughs> I filed my taxes. Oh. <laughs> oh, I pay so many taxes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's cool. It's cool to be in this phase. So, huzzah, celebrating being yeah. in our late 20s. What's up, late 20s? What's up, late 20s? Let's move into our guest. Uh, Sarah, would you like to kind of set up what we're talking about today? Yes. So today we're really excited to share with you that we um, are again continuing our theme of stigma. But today we're going to look at in particular the context with mental illness and how that stigma is sort of the same and different. And we're really just looking at this overall large umbrella of stigma and that people are facing with that. Um, Let's get going with our awesome expert, Pat. Hello, Pat. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us. Um, Can you please just tell us How's your day and what have you been up to so far? How's my day? Um, last week I was in Spain and so I'm sort of adjusting to being back on American time. Um, I caught up now today. I'm sort of school's out for us. So I'm doing a lot of writing, which is good. I love that. That's amazing. Um, well, I know that specifically today we want to talk with you about your expertise, and that is stigma around mental illness. I had the chance to specifically sit down and read your newest book and go through it, and literally, like, I have like five pages of notes from everything that I was like, Nikki, you must remember this for the future and for life. <laughs> you want to be my graduate student? I, yes, I do. I do. Psychology. You can be counseling psychologist. Okay, seriously. Um, yeah, so so kind of jumping off of that, again, there's so many amazing details within the work that you've done. And, and even in just by reading the one book, I learned so much. So as I'd love to kind of try to unpack that in the time that we have as best we can. So I guess the, the easiest place to start is, can you please tell us what is the current mental illness stigma? What is the current flavor in, in society today? How bad is it? Um, It's pretty bad. And research suggests the stigma of mental illness is getting worse. Hmm. Um, Probably the one stigma to be of concern, um, I I consider stigma to be stereotypes. So there are stereotypes of African-Americans and stereotypes of women and stereotypes of gays. Um, So there are stereotypes of mental illness and probably the big stereotype is they're dangerous. 
I mean, there's evidence that's probably getting a lot worse. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably tied to these god-awful shootings. And every mm -hmm. time there is one of those, um, people have a natural desire to make sense of it. And the way we make sense of it is a person's mentally ill. Um, actually, that stigma is so bad that there's a colleague in Australia did a study that after the Sandy Hook shooting, the one where the little children were shot to death, the stigma mental illness in Australia got worse. Um, the stigma pretty much is getting worse because of dangerousness. That and go ahead, Sarah. Sorry, I was just gonna say, and, and then linking that, like, oh, this is a result, and like that's how we're gonna control and prevent these things from happening in the future. I remember um, when Twenty One, I believe, is that the movie that came out a couple years ago. Um, we were excited because it's about mental. It was just like a. I think it was about mental health or, or something. And I remember being really disappointed that this was a recent movie and it was like the 21 personalities. And it was of course a gentleman that had um, schizoaffective disorder and then like kidnapped these girls. And, and like, this is a movie that came out in what, like 2017. And it was really disappointing that we're still perpetuating these on film and screen. I know we just did a whole media chapter and that that's how we're learning social scripts. So we're learning that how we interact with the world. And if this is the content that's being produced and, and shared, then that's really taking negative hit towards things in our society as well. Well, when you talk about media, um, I do think Hollywood's getting better. Um, there are There is an office actually in Hollywood who's motivated to reach out to film producers when they show disrespectful images and tone it down a bit. Um, but you know, they say in the media, when it bleeds, it leads. And recovery, which is the rule of mental illness, is boring. And if you want to make a movie, it's going to get people's attention. You don't want to talk about how the person with mental illness, in fact, lives with their symptoms quite well, is able to get through college, um, get a job and be successful. Um, that doesn't make for exciting slasher films. And so that's why the slasher film is going to uh, endure. Yeah, definitely. I would assume it's only hurtful when that specifically is not it's not that that's not some people's experience but especially what we were talking about when we were just specifically talking about media and physical disability was that is the majority of people are not at one end or the other the majority of the people are like you said living very well you know taking their medications handling their simple symptoms going into school graduating school you know, many people are living inside this area that that really isn't shown. And so therefore, it's hurtful because we're not seeing those scripts. Yeah, the public overestimates the degree to which somebody with mental illness is likely to be dangerous. Um, we did a study looking at epidemiologic research. And if you sit in a room with 100 people and you could know everything about them, including whether they have mental illness or whatever, the single best predictor who in that room is dangerous is whether they're male. The second single best predictor is whether they're a young adult male. And the third one is whether they're a minority. We start locking up young minority males. I would hope there'd be a segment of the population who would object, but you would be more accurate than you would with mental illness. Hmm. Sad things. Um, I know that kind of shifting back into stuff that specifically was from the book, 
you speak about three agendas. You speak about the service agenda, the rights agenda, and the self-worth agenda. I was wondering if you could um, explain those to us and why they're important. So I guess the issue is why do you want to change stigma? Um, we might assume that we all agree there's one reason to do this and we all jump in, but actually there's three different reasons and they kind of compete with each other. Um, one is a services agenda. Um, we know that for people who are depressed, there are good interventions that can help them with their depression, both psychotherapy and medication. Um, we also know that people won't go into services in order to avoid stigma. I don't want to be seen coming out of a psychiatrist's office because then everybody's going to know I'm crazy. Um, mm -hmm. So the services agenda is try to decrease stigma to get people into services. Um, that's a second, that's a separate issue from the second agenda, which is much more the civil rights agenda. The rights agenda is we know somebody who's labeled mentally ill has a lot harder get time getting a job or getting a good apartment or like, so that's a civil rights agenda, just like mm -hmm. rights are. And so that's the second agenda. And the third one is the self-esteem agenda. I've always said it, it's hard enough having a mental illness and being depressed. But on top of that, you're supposed to feel ashamed of yourself. Mm -hmm. So the third agenda is how to decrease the shame. Mm -hmm. That is so much, you know, of what Sarah and I have been talking about with, with every single expert that we've brought on, you know, in one form or another, we're addressing stigma, whether we're, whether it's like specifically stigma or not. Um, and I feel like so much of it comes back to that, that self-worth and that self-talk and the way in which we talk to ourselves or to one another. Um, and I know you've talked about it as well. You explain the self-stigma. Can you share what that is and why is that important? How do we change that? What do we, what do we do to make that better? Um, so I like to distinguish between several kinds of stigma. Um, the one that normally comes to mind is public stigma. What mm -hmm. happens when we, the public, um, agree with a stereotype about mental illness, like they're all dangerous or incompetent or chose to be that way and discriminate against them. And therefore, I don't want to be their buddy at school or I don't want to hire them or rent to them. Um, Self-stigma is what happens when you take those stereotypes and internalize them. Um, you beat yourself up with things. Um, how to fix it is... Uh, a 10-hour discussion. Um, I will give you two um, nuggets um, that are, in my opinion, um, valuable from the work we've been doing over the last 20 years. The first nugget is that education pretty much doesn't work, at least for adults. Um, by the time you get to an adult, whether you do in fact know or not, you think you do. And so any kind of contrary information just rolls off of you. Think about it for a person who's a racial bigot. Um, if you think black people have no value, no, I can't tell you anything about the wonderful culture of Africans that's going to change that. Um, yeah. So education doesn't work, and that can be a bit of a bombshell because mental health providers are educated people, and we want to educate everybody and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the secret to changing stigma is contact. Um, the way we've improved, notice I say improved, I don't think we've eliminated it, but the way we improve racial injustice is to facilitate interactions between blacks and whites as peers. Mm -hmm. The difference between mental illness and color 
is again in a room of 100 people you can tell who's ethnically diverse from you by skin color and you can tell who's gender diverse from you by body parts and if you could see me right now you could see i have gray hair so you can tell who's of a different age by age, by hair color um you can't tell who has a mental illness um in some ways having a mental illness is similar to being gay or lesbian let me stop a minute and say um, I don't think being gay or lesbian is a mental illness. In fact, it's probably one of the greatest crimes psychiatry ever did. Mm. But the similarity between them both is, again, being back in that room of 100 people, um, statistically 10 people are gay and you can't tell who they are. Um, by the way, statistically 20 of them have a serious mental illness and you mm. can't tell who they are yeah. unless they come out. And so we've made big changes in the gay agenda in my lifetime because 30 40 50 years ago gay men and women came out um and we argue that's the same strategy for mental illness mm. uh, being in the closet and being ashamed of yourself is terribly hard um, come out proud share people your stories um that will decrease your self-stigma and the more we know those people those people we know people with mental illness are everywhere the more we're going to get rid of the public stigma Yes. And I think part of that, like coming out of the closet also enables others to give permission to like, I think there's this, we need to give ourselves permission to be able to share our stories. And then with that, people are like, Oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm reading this, like, this is what I'm thinking and feeling too. Like, I need to say something because this whole time, I thought I was the only one experiencing this and like suppressing being really ashamed because no one's talking about it. So I think sometimes just even one person sharing their conversation enables and gives permission for others to, to add to the conversation and be like, Oh, yes, me too. And then suddenly, it's a lot easier to understand mental health and mental illness when someone you really care about has components of that and you're working so i think that like coming in contact and it's really hard to hate people that you know or think less than people that you know so i think it's really important to help give that permission pervade that like safe space in order to talk through all these things yeah i i, I hate to bore us with statistics but you know one of the ironies if you're working in a business and there's you know, a hundred people, again, I'm back to the hundred people in the room. Um, and you have a mental illness, how terribly alone you feel about it, not knowing another 19 people in that room have the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I imagine I'm a straight male, but I would imagine being gay, you know, you're in a room, a hundred people and 10 people are gay, knowing who they are, um, can make, can provide awesome support that, that, um, straight allies can't do and so mm -hmm. it's the same thing with mental illnesses and no other people are there what's really important though is that people with mental illness um, to change stigma need to talk about their stories of recovery mm -hmm. um, not their stories of illness mm -hmm. uh, we don't encourage gay people to come out and talk about how awkward they are and how they can't have a normal I mean, we'd never talk like that, have a normal sexual life. We wouldn't talk anything like that. So similarly, we don't want mentally ill people with mental illness to focus on this, how I'm broken sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling them to hide that, but um, the rule is recovery is the rule, not the exception. Mm -hmm. um, so my question, the thing that I am trying to reason out or come to terms with is I'm somebody who 
I want all the answers, right? Like I'm going to go read all of the books and I'm going to seek out like this podcast. I'm going to seek out all of the experts. I can personally ask them, what is the data? What are, what does studies say? Like that's inherently kind of who I am as a person. And so I want to think that this idea that I can share statistics and that I can share data, that that will be something that will help change the stigma. How do I reconcile that or how do, well, so two questions, how do I reconcile that? (laughs) And then the second part is then, can I still use that education in a way that is still personally interacting uh, or, or how can I use it? How can I educate? How can I do that best? <laughs> no, you weren't paying attention. I was trying. Um, so, I mean, I do statistics as a lifestyle. I've published 400 peer-reviewed journal articles. Um, I come from a blue-collar background. Uh, my father ran an electrician's business in Evanston and Skokie for um, 40 years. Um, my blue collar family don't care about a bar chart, wouldn't be interested in a bar chart. Right. Um, I just think sometimes uh, looking at you both, you look to be kind of smart, well-educated people. I think we're, we're um, biased by education. Mm. I just think things just roll off people. Um, one of my favorite studies, I didn't do it. A guy named um, Nyan did it. Is you know, there's this belief that vaccinations cause autism. Um, hopefully, you know that's not a true belief, but that's mm-hmm. a major health problem. As you probably know, measles mm-hmm. is actually going up in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so they'll do research or they'll sit down with moms who believe this and show them the facts from the CDC and a videotape of a young girl who gets measles, who, by the way, gets pretty darn sick. Um, and what you'll find is their attitudes about vaccinations don't change, but their intentions to vaccinate their children actually get worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this fundamental, don't tell me what to think sort of thing, that education doesn't do well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what changes things is for somebody to sit down with a person with mental illness and find out they don't breathe fire, they're not drooling, they don't headbang, um, they're as complex a human beings as you and I are. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's where contact makes a difference. So God bless your data. Keep looking. Um, Keep keep creating data. Um, But uh, my blue collar family ain't going to go anywhere with it. Yeah. Well, something that I really like too, and and I'm thinking back in my like undergrad psychology classes that I took, um, I took a social psychology class at one point. And something that I loved from there, and I keep thinking about it, is that we don't actually interact with reality, we interact with what we perceive reality to be. So if I believe something, I'm going to look in my environment, and I'm going to pull the data that supports what I believe. Um, And that that is sort of foundation for lots of different things from there. I know we talked about it in the context of like people in abusive relationships, and like, they believe that this person's actually being good to them and not. So I just I think about that a lot in that if we have this whatever perceived reality is that that's what we're interacting with, not actual reality. Right. What are some ways that we can be allies and, and, and really, and not necessarily say that we're in that room of hundred people, 
Um, and we don't necessarily know who are the 200 or the 20 people with mental illness, but what's a way that we can help create a comfortable environment for them to feel comfortable enough to share if they want to, or how can we best support them if we're not necessarily within the mental illness community? That's a good question. I've been thinking about that lately. Um, I like the term ally. Um, what does an ally for mental illness mean? I just think sometimes we might be a little early in this. Um, to understand that. So the best example is um, I've become very interested in faith-based communities, um, not necessarily because I'm a religious guy, because actually I'm not very religious, um, but more that I think faith-based communities have the potential to offer people with mental illness, people with disabilities a lot, um, offer acceptance and inclusion and respect. Um, but I also noticed a lot of faith-based communities can't handle these folks. And so part of the reason, I, I am a Unitarian. I don't know if you guys know Unitarian. Totally. Uh, and what, what we've done is we've coined the idea of compassion risk. So there's this big movement now to go around and educate the public about how hard mental illness is and be sympathetic with them and be inclusive with them and open your arms up to them. And that's not really um, the big thing in the Unitarian uh, faith is um, we're ungodly inclusive. And so it's the risk in mental illness is that we focus on the mental illness to say, oh, you poor mentally ill guy, come on in and we'll be your friend. Um, I mean, on one hand, that kind of thing might be necessary because some people with mental illness have a hard time socially. But in terms of dealing with stigma, solidarity is what we want. Is I stand with you where you're at, whatever you're at. Um, once in a while, I might even disagree with you. But um, I mean, when I have mental health challenges, I do not want anybody to be my therapist. Absolutely not. Um, I just want people to know and say, okay, that's where you're at. Good. I like this idea of that's where you're at. I know um, something I found really helpful is talking about like the spectrum and just sort of like, how are you feeling today? on like a one to a 10, like where, where are you with crisis? I know sometimes I have people call me and they're like, you know, lots going on. It's like, are you in crisis? Like how close are you to crisis? Um, and like, yes, I can stop what I'm doing and, and have that conversation or like, no, are you, you know, are people not? So I just kind of like that this is how today is going. Like I'm at a five today or like I'm at a seven. A lot of things are happening or like actually I'm at a one or a two and I'm really far away from crisis if 10 is being crisis um, and crisis being, you know, could be anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be a crisis, but I think that, that that spectrum can be really helpful too and sort of checking in with people and being able to communicate sort of how we are and what we're feeling with numbers if people like numbers. Um, like Vicky here. Uh, and, and I find that really, um, I find that really helpful to help communicate where people are at when sometimes I think words can be really difficult and trying to understand those different experiences too. Yeah, I too, we will come up with a subjective units of distress scale. So, you know, a scale of one to 10, how distressed are you right now? Mm. However, that's useful when you're in that helping role. Um, and mm -hmm. I don't need to be with a person with mental illness and be their helper. Mm -hmm. Um, so right. it's balancing both of those. And that's hard. I, by no means do I want everybody listening saying, hey, if somebody with mental illness comes to your church, ignore them. Don't be nice to them. Don't reach out to them. Don't be compassionate. Um, 
you just can't define your relationship with anybody based on compassion because underneath compassion is this notion of sympathy and pity and pity yes. is fundamentally a one down relationship that uh, can like yes everything you just said is like i will put an amen on it yes in the conversation that we're having right now what i'm relating it kind of back to uh, to my experience and sarah and i have had a lot of conversations about how you know we've we've come out as very proud of our disability and we have done our homework to understand the stigma and what that actually means and and you know what are microaggressions and and how do we deal with it and how do we respond like just my point is is we've done our homework so we're able to kind of look back and see a lot of our friends who are struggling really hard on on the path to try to make it to this other side right like they're trying to cross the bridge into pride how how do you go alongside them when i feel like i have the answers i feel like i am somebody who wants to mentor them but you're right like i just need to be somebody who's going alongside them i guess that's the answer is is stop it nikki stop being <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, take all my feedback and just be a person and just shut up sometimes. <laughs> That's probably what it is. <laughs> you should interview yourself for the for this. Um, I, I would have just said everything you said. Okay, okay. Um, you, know, you can't say, Sarah, I'm going to be your mentor today. <laughs> but what, um, I want to sometimes, right? Pat. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's very good for me to hear, I guess, is what I'm getting at. This this very humanistic side of things and this coming alongside someone and being with them, and, um, that's really important for, for me to hear. So I'm excited for also for everybody else. Yeah, to I mean, if you really believe in empowerment, then you have to accept the fact that sometimes people are going to make decisions that you think are bad. That's and okay, good. I mean, there is occasionally a line that's sort of in the grossly immoral illegal stage, but otherwise we just agree to disagree. Yeah, that makes sense. You as a person who is a leader, who is an expert, who, who really understands the field, what would you say, somebody who is on their path, <laughs> um, trying to figure out, trying to find their pride. If I, if I was asking you to be a mentor and give a mentor statement, what would, what would that be <laughs> right after we discussed that? Well, you're asking me. I'm not foisting yeah. it on you. That's fair. Um, um, I think one thing you may want to look at, um, and this might sound like a shameless plug, but there's no request for money in it is um, we developed a program called honest, open, proud to erase the stigma of mental illness about six years ago. And it's to help people decide whether they want to come out. Uh, it's specific to mental illness. Um, we do not. And I say this over and over again, and I'll say this to people listening now, now I do not have an agenda that you get done listening to this and go tell 10 people you have a mental health uh, challenge because that would be ignoring all the concerns I have about stigma to begin with. There are risks to coming out. Um, and a Supreme Court judge once said it's hard to stop the clanging bell. Once you're out, it's kind of hard to go back. Um, Honest Open Proud is just a planful way to do it. Um, one planful way to do it 
is Nikki seems to be a nice person. I might want to come out to you. I could take you to Starbucks. I could say, hey, did you hear Mariah Carey is out with bipolar disorder? What do you think? And if you said, I'm sick and tired of those people talking about that crazy nutso stuff, you're probably not a good person for me to come out to. Um, and you can mm -hmm. go to the website, uh, www.hopprogram.org and download all of this for free. Amazing. And yeah. Oh, sorry. We'll, we'll make That's a point to link that we on our website as well. So people will be able to find it right with the episode. Is there anything that you feel like we didn't touch on that you would like to speak about or shed more light on? Yeah, I mean, I, I could talk for hours, but I'm trying to leave you all with something that's um, relevant. I, I think part of the tension, I mean, again, I'm Dr. Pat, so I am a psychologist. Um, I have more legitimacy when I come at this as a person with lived experience than doctor. And so that's really important is doctors are not the people who are going to fix this. Um, as a matter of fact, there's some pretty good evidence that Psychiatrists and psychologists are among the most stigmatizing of professions, throwing in carpenters, plumbers, and lawyers. Um, and so we need to accept the fact that unless you're a person with mental illness, um, you're an ally. Um, okay, well, I want to be very respectful and mindful of everyone's time. So, I, get, I mean, I just want to give you such thanks today, Pat, for joining us and agreeing to come on and just have an hour-long discussion about life with us. <laughs> uh, it really is, um, for, for Sarah and I, it's such an honor to have access not only to you and your knowledge, but for you to be willing to share that with, you know, everybody with us. So thank you. My pleasure. Amazing. We want to give special thanks to our network, Public House Media, for our intro beats, Jason Barnes at Cybernetics, for our logo art, Patrice, you can find him at normalpersons.com, and Matt Meldrum and Ryan Louie, our two-handed technical team. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or publichousemedia.org. Follow us on Twitter at DisarmDisable. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at DisarmingDisability. And check out our website, DisarmingDisability.com. See you next week. Bye.